Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today's guest is Michael Freeman. He has a master's degree in social work and is a licensed clinical social worker in Central Florida. Not only is he a social worker, but he is an executive coach and a life coach, an organizational consultant, and a community social worker. In addition to all of that, he works with teams and organizations in the areas of change management, culturally competent leadership development, and diversity, inclusion, equity, and social justice. He served as a member of the faculty and staff at the University of Central Florida for over 10 years, where he was the lead coordinator of education and training for wellness and health promotion services. Michael's community involvement centers around service to the Harbor House of Central Florida, which is Orange County's Center Against Domestic Violence, the Zebra Coalition, and the Central Florida Human Trafficking Task Force, where he serves as co-chair for the LGBTQ Human Trafficking Subcommittee. You are a key member of the team over at OUAC as well, the Orlando United Assistance Center, who offers support and resources to those impacted by the Pulse tragedy. The city of Orlando, Orange County government, and Heart of Florida United Way came together and formed the OUAC with its primary mission to connect individuals and families with community resources to assist with healing. The main focus was toward members of the LGBTQ community and their families. UCF Restores began offering services to members of the public safety community in the wake of that tragedy. Many of my friends are part of both communities. We are talking today about your experience with public safety professionals, cops, and firefighters, particularly the causes and effects of PTSD in those occupations. Before we get into that, you are also very well versed on leadership development. Can we discuss your philosophy on leadership and maybe a few defining moments or people that shaped your leadership philosophy? Sure, thank you, David. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, not only in my own training, but also in my work over the last lot of years, um, my philosophy of leadership very much is around understanding how servant leadership really uh, intersects with empowerment. And so recognizing that it is not enough in my experience that we simply serve those that we are leading, but it is much more important to empower them because I do believe that if part of our leadership development isn't also employee development, then I feel like we have failed. And so I think I learned a lot of that. I've had the pleasure of doing leadership development work uh, with Walt Disney World Company, um, with the University of Central Florida, um, 
spent a number of years with uh, the National Conference for Community and Justice. And so in, in each of those roles, there has been some significant development, not only from me individually, but just in collaboration with, with a lot of folks of creating what we now call <laughs> culturally competent leadership programs. And so most of my mentors have been women of color. And so that has had a profound effect on how I view the world, on how I lead in the world, um, my relationship with those who are part of my team, um, with the work that I do currently in my own practice. And so, you know, for, for those folks, I am just deeply in debt with them. Um, I will also say that that uh, Judson Green, who was president uh, at, at Disney, was also a very powerful mentor, and uh, I very much appreciate appreciated his leadership as well. Um, I, I do think that this notion of what does leadership development look like, I think you and I have talked previously just in terms of how do you find a person's leadership style when an organizational culture <laughs> may not support that leadership style? Right. So I think for me, one of my great challenges was stepping into an organization such as Disney, where type A personalities being on all the time were being extroverts, all of those things were highly prized. And so what do you do then in a leadership role where you have these brilliant cast members who are introverted, who are very thoughtful? Um, you know, where do you find a space for them in the process? And so that was a very interesting thing for me to work through those dynamics, even when we talked about diversity and inclusion. And, but it was a very, very, important laboratory if i can use that laboratory to practice and to do some of that work some of that work on so how how did you go about teaching these organizational leaders to to be more effective in their roles okay well the the one thing that that i learned um is that what moves people to change and what moves people to get things done is money. And so unless, and so this is my piece, unless I could get leaders tuned into the same WWIFM, what's in it for me, then nothing was going to change. And so if you're working with an organization, let's say um, like Walt Disney World, and you are trying to help develop culturally competent leaders to recognize that there are markets out there, segments of markets that they haven't even touched yet. And so in, in terms of business, and, and I am grateful for my you know, undergraduate work as in business, is when you can talk about what money is being left on the table, when you talk about incenting leaders to reach certain goals then you have their attention and 
we said, you know, back in the back in the eighties, you know, that we have to get our leaders to evolve or they will become extinct. And so it is it is thinking outside of whatever paradigm they were trained in to also recognize this beautiful, amazing, diverse, not only workforce that they had, but what their market looked like. And so not everybody came running excited about that because sometimes you have to turn things upside down. Sometimes you have to push a little bit and, and corporation, most organizations, unless they're, um, mission statement focuses on the wellness of people or what have you, then they're, they're interested in returning money to the shareholders. And so the, the mantra was, you know, we would do diversity and inclusion and equity because it was the right thing to do. Well, that spoke oftentimes to the heart, but I had to try to develop a leadership style that said, when we do the right things for our employees, when we do the right things for our shareholders, and when we do the right things for our customers, then we are doing the right thing. Right. So, you know, it it very much is taking some of that and expanding in terms of what does that mean with a lens on who is left away from the table, who's not sitting here at the table. And And it, it becomes, it becomes a place of discomfort and and certainly the thing that I've learned is how do you create a space for folks to express their uncomfortable or to say, I don't understand. And, and so very carefully making sure that you don't create a call out culture, a shame culture. You know, this is my model when I teach social work students is you don't know what you don't know. And that's the most dangerous thing in the world. And so our job is to try to figure out what it is that I don't know and then do better because we don't know it. Right. It's, uh, it's interesting. As you were talking about the uh, monetary incentives in, in corporate, uh, corporate America, where the goal is maximizing the return for the shareholders. When we're talking about public safety, these are government agencies and there really isn't a monetary uh, incentive for frontline workers. They don't get pay raises based on how well they lead the people on their team. Um, but what's interesting is, as you were talking about that, it still is a matter of money. The you know, county, city governments, state governments, they, they are charged with being good stewards of the tax dollars that they collect from the communities. And you know, a lot of times public safety, uh, fire and, and police, law enforcement, they're spending more time in disadvantaged uh, portions of the community. Um, 
And I've had several conversations with, with individuals where the discussion centered around how when you're operating in those areas as a public servant and it's constant, you're seeing horrible things and you can get jaded and your decision-making can um, be askew. Um, and all this can, can tie into uh, mental health as well, but particularly how we treat the people on our team as public safety becomes more diverse and just the different age groups that are represented now where emotional intelligence is extremely important when, when leading those people that maybe you, you don't have a, a whole lot of the same upbringing or life experiences. And so I think that's kind of right in line with what you were talking about is really having this level of empathy or emotional intelligence to help you communicate effectively and inspire those people that you're leading. And in turn, if they're operating at a high level, the treatment and interaction with the community is going to be at a higher level, which then serves to indicate to the community that the government is being a good steward of their tax dollars. Well, and I think, I think I agree with you 100%. And I think that the piece that is that has to sort of sit side by side with that being a good steward of the tax dollars is also that these as frontline workers care that they care about the community. And, and, you know, and that's a piece again of, you know, I mean, I would say probably at least three quarters of my practice is, focuses on trauma and trauma survivors, everything from developmental trauma um, that has experienced during childhood through, you know, through natural, national disasters and sexual assault and all of that. And one of the ways in which you move someone through that healing process is to create space in a way that they know someone cares that there is, there is a heart element to that. And so you aren't just doing your job because your job, my job, you know, whether it's frontline or backline or however we want to, to define that um, are expected to carry in into that space a level of emotional intelligence, a level of compassion, a level of kindness. And I will say to you that, um, that in, for me in treating folks who have gone through, um, you know, post some sort of trauma, that finding that center of compassion and kindness becomes very, very difficult because what's happened is the person is in a place of survival. And so 
what gets wrecked in this whole thing of, of trauma is the notion of what safety and security is. And so until, until we can find a way, um, whether it is through medication, through, through um, talk therapy or whatever, until we can help that survivor find a place in which they feel safe and secure, then they're going to continue to live with the emotional damage that's done because of that trauma. And so it is a piece of, and again, if I can just use what happened at Pulse. And so, you know, a lot of our work at the OUAC was, of course, attending to the survivors, attending to the families of those who were slain, but also those who were impacted. And so the first responders, you know, the, the people who were, who were on the streets who were helping. And so folks like the couple of physicians I worked with whose offices are near the scene. And so the helicopters that were going, and so just the sound of a helicopter is enough to trigger someone's, you know, post-traumatic stress. And, and when we understand that, that that as a disorder, you know, I'm not going to get into the DSM-5 thing, but that as a disorder, you know, develops when someone has experienced something that is shocking, scary, um, you know, or dangerous. You and I can be in the same place and experience it, but have very different reactions to it. And this is what makes studying and treating research around PTSD, you know, so very, very complicated. And, and so I know that one of the things that we've talked about at the OUAC from a research standpoint is we didn't know in, in, in the folks that we were treating what kind of trauma history they had. And so how does a pre-existing trauma event, how is that impacted by an additional trauma event? And so if we know that the body keeps score in terms of how it carries that trauma, what happens when they have experienced trauma again? And so you take a population. And so we often talk about the intersection of identities. And so you certainly not, not everyone who was impacted um, fits into the LGBTQ community. Not everyone fits into the Latinx community. But there were enough folks who were carrying these multiple identities with them, plus an identity in many cases of previous trauma. And so when my work, particularly with first responders, is how do I get to what their trauma history is before they experience the last trauma that sent them to my office? And, and so we can work on what's current, but unless you take care of what has happened post, I mean pre, then you're not going to be successful. And I think therein, and so I can't speak to all therapists, but I will say to you that I think that becomes one of the most important things that we have to do. And so for me, looking at a trauma getting a trauma history is important. Knowing how they worked through or didn't work through that trauma. Um, 
I will say to you that I think because a lot of my work is with with men that I'm trying okay I'm gonna just say what my experience that I feel like as a society in many cases we have neutered men in terms of emotion availability and so as long as a man can break something or fix something not all men not all men but most of the men that I see you know who are in law enforcement who are uh, fire service you know there is an expectation that they show up in a certain way and in that way which is don't let your feelings get in the way that becomes what gets in the way of their healing and so that notion of how do you begin to break that down to say to someone who perhaps was punished don't cry like a girl don't do this don't do that that it's okay to feel what you feel because David, here's the here's what the, the the issue of of trauma and getting someone through PTSD. And so, you know, the post-traumatic stress, where it becomes a disorder, is when it's it so gets in your way that it impacts your employment, going to school, social relationship. And so this notion of then of how do you get to that sort of core of what's going on to make someone feel safe enough. That they can explore this because what we have to do is we look at the trauma event and we know that what surrounds that trauma event are emotions and they're generally very very high emotions what happens is that part of your brain it's the limbic system is your reptilian brain that warns you danger 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 you know moves into fight flight or freeze and so what we know about animals when they experience it they shake it off and they go on about their business. Unless we have a way that we can help that client discharge that emotion that they're carrying, they're going to carry that emotion with them. That's why you, you have night terrors. It's why you have um, you know, nightmares. It's why uh, anxiety, uh, generalized anxiety, you know, um, depression, OCD, all of those characteristics become a part of what it means to live with PTSD and particularly complex PTSD. And, and so here's my statement as a therapist. For our cities, for our government to not regard PTSD in terms of availability for disability is, is, is malpractice. That just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not impacting them and so for me in these who i see increased levels of substance abuse risky sexual behavior um decision making that just wouldn't make sense to them prior to this event broken relationships i mean just things that that we can predict unless it gets taken care of and i do think again my statement i do think that we could return people to service, to employment, to effectiveness, if we could address those issues. Now, in, in terms of one's ability to lead, you know, you talked a little bit about decision-making ability um, when impacted by the effects of PTSD. Um, how would you expect 
to see that and say frontline um, leadership in, in the fire service or law enforcement? I, I would I would put it in the same category as I would um, anyone who is who has been drinking, anyone who is under the influence. When a person is in an active state of post-traumatic stress and the characteristics, it, it, you can't you can't operate in that part of your brain that is your executive function and decision making while you're in your fight, flight, or freeze part of your brain, and so you're not getting the best decision making. And, and again, I'm going to use what I see a lot is that you add then how people are coping. And so you add alcohol to it or you add some other substance to it. And, and you're not going to get the best out of your folks. You absolutely are not going to get the best out of your folks. And when you have leadership that demands the kind of decision making that it does from our first responders, then you put your team and those around them in danger. So, and then, you know, in terms of, well, one of the things that I talk about in, in my lectures and workshops is how, how important self-leadership is, not only in your professional life, but in your personal life, because especially in public safety, you are representing that organization 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as far as the public is concerned. So decisions that you make, even when you're not at work, can make headlines. And if, you're, if your effectiveness as a self-leader is diminished because of you know, diminished mental health, Chances of making poor decisions, like you said, you know, the substance abuse, risky behavior, that sort of thing can oftentimes lead to uh, conflicts with law enforcement, that sort of thing. Um, you know, what are, what are some of your experiences with that? Well, and, and I think the piece of self-leadership is, is absolutely um, important to do and again in in the leadership programs um you know that i've i've had the opportunity to develop in the work that i do as a professor in helping future therapists is it is you first have to know yourself and so i have to be not only self-aware but self-committed to understand how my awareness affects my leadership. And so to that person who, and I know, I know that from a societal point of view, we're having this whole discussion around implicit bias and what does that mean? And just because a person doesn't like it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so the piece that is often difficult in a therapy session with folks is to get them to take a journey to understand what is the narrative or what are the narratives they're caring about themselves? How do they see themselves? And so is it adaptive? Is it maladaptive? Is, is their response, is their coping mechanism, you know, to 
you know, to drink until they black out? Or is there coping mechanism to go take a walk or, or sit with someone they love to talk about it? And so, you know, I think, again, because as a society, we have not put a premium or value on mental health, that for us as therapists, we, we feel like we're always catching up. You know, folks don't walk in my office and say, hey, you know, I want to do a, a bi-monthly check-in just to make sure that I'm doing okay. You know, I, I, I get couples on the verge of divorce. I get folks who've had a nervous breakdown or whatever it may be. And so, you know, where we'll go get a physical once a year, you know, my goal has always been, can we just do that in terms of a mental health check-in? And so that notion of self-awareness and how do we understand how we've been socialized what is the narrative that I carry if I am 60 years old and I have a 22-year-old who shows up that I'm responsible for mentoring, you know, and he's, he has a little bit of attitude, you know, how do I mentor him, you know, in a way that respects where he is, but to be able to say, you know, dude, that's not going to work here. And so how do we support each other in that process? And I think for many, many of our frontline uh, folks is there is an, ex I'll use their language, there's an expected behavior when you step into your role. And when, when I'm out of the role, allegedly out of the role, then I don't have to do that. But your point is, is an excellent one. You don't get to step out of that role. You know, you don't get, even if you get to take off your badge, you are still in law enforcement. You are still in fire service. And so, you know, that piece of camaraderie, that piece of how you support each other in the process, I think is as important as any leadership in creating a, an organizational culture that values self-exploration, that values training that looks at wow i didn't know that how do you how do you help someone be open to learning um the work i did with the national conference for community and justice in trying to create um intergroup dialogue whether it was racial whether it was cross-gender sexual orientation socioeconomic status is that the older most often the older the person was the more difficult time it was to have them think about what it meant to be in someone else's shoes. And, and so, you know, we have to be able to create a space that's safe enough so folks can do that self-actualization, that self-exploration. I worry that where we are is that we're in this shame culture that everybody's supposed to have everything all figured out and, and we just simply don't. We're, we're arguing over what lives matter, you know, and, and the fact of what does one mean compared to the other, to be able to hear that, I think is really important. But that, that requires us to be vulnerable. That requires us to say, and this is the piece where I feel like leadership that has an empowerment piece in it that says, 
you will never be done with leadership development. There is no end point, none. And, and so that piece of how do you let someone know that and that it's okay. We're all a work in progress. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty profound. It, and getting some organizations to recognize that it's not, Oh, here you take this class and you're good. Um, well, um, I wanted to ask you when it when it comes to mental health, especially in public safety, where there is a stigma that if you seek out help, it's a, a sign of weakness. Um, you know, I, I know when I first came on came into the fire service, I, I'd went on a pretty bad call that in, involved some children. And when we got back to the station, I asked the guys around the table, you know, they were all senior guys. I, I asked them, you know, if calls like that year after year after year has affected them and how they have dealt with it and immediately it was oh my gosh this guy you know what you you might need to rethink your career choice buddy if you're already talking about that this might not be the job for you and what that did was it showed me that talking about that was not acceptable so it took a long time for me to, to really come to terms with, with what I was dealing with. So knowing that that stigma exists, and I know that um, organizations and uh, mental health groups have been doing a lot of work towards uh, diminishing that stigma, it still exists. So when, if you were talking to a group of public safety individuals that that range in ranks from the most junior to the most senior what what would be what would be your advice to them when it comes to mental health um, I think I think the piece of I'll preface it by saying that organizational change happens when leadership sets up an expectation and models what that should look like. And so when I'm asked to step into an organization to speak about mental health and can talk about how do we bridge that place of weakness or whatever the culture is, that that sends a very powerful message. You have to have your, your, you know, C-levels, your CEO, CFO, all everybody, you know, modeling what that looks like. And, and so that when there are those kinds of conversations that you just said, there's somebody that says, no, wait a minute, this, that's a great question. Why don't we talk about that? And so, you know, that piece of saying to all folks across, you know, the organization of what keeps us, I think it's worth talking about what keeps us from having those conversations. Why 
why is that uncomfortable? You know, because if we look at the research, if you have six people who are sitting there, you know, you have somewhere between two or three who are living with some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, particularly in the fire service and in law enforcement. And so it's my notion, and I've carried this with me since my um, diversity training, my social justice training is we can't fix what we can't talk about. And so to just simply ask the question, why can't we talk about this? Uh, Because, you know, again, that piece of why does it make people uncomfortable? Well, because how we promote people, we don't care if you broke your leg, just get, you know, fix it. But if somebody knew you had experienced generalized anxiety disorder, but you've gotten through it, somehow that impacts your competencies to do your job. Where for us as mental health counselors, we would say, no, what it does is it gives that person a greater perspective on how this particular disorder impacts the people who are part of their team. And so, you know, it it is, this is a long, hard road. And, you know, whether we're talking about kids who pick up guns and kill people or adults are doing, you know, ridiculous things, you know, there is an element of understanding a person's mental health that is really important. And so, for me, with folks who are who feel some type of way, I don't do I don't do I don't go. Let's do a trauma history. Okay. Mostly because folks don't understand the full range of trauma. We think of trauma being a first responder, serving in war, sexual assault, and I mean, trauma can be defined with all of those things, but so can being a member or part of an underrepresented part of the community and experiencing ongoing discrimination. And so what I do is I, I try to assess with life events. Tell me the good and tell me the bad. And so there's a lot that you get out of that. Um, I got bullied in high school. Okay, most people would not consider that trauma. But it depends on the extent and duration of that bullying and the impact to that person that should be discovered. And so doing assessments around anxiety, doing assessments around um, depression, all of those are real, real important. And, you know, what I try to do is give leaders those tools to be able to say, here's just some information. Let me show you how that's done and see where you land on that because much like we did in terms of creating diversity and inclusion and equity, that leadership has to come from the top and it can't be, Oh hell, we got to do this. Just everybody fill it out. You got to live it. If you're not living it, then you're not doing it. So one thing, and, and, you know, I just, if you're comfortable with talking about it, one of the themes of, uh, what I, I like to teach is lessons learned through our personal failures and, you know, sharing what I've experienced when, 
when mentoring, coaching, lecturing about leadership, and when I share my my failures and the lessons that I've learned and just what it's done for me to realize that, you know, this, this failure is not permanent and it doesn't define me unless I let it. And when, when I recover from that failure, I'm stronger, I'm better, much like a broken bone that heals, that fracture point is stronger than the rest of the bone. So these personal failures or professional failures that we all experience, I think, especially in, in the fire service, being able to to share my lessons, to help others not make those same mistakes can be pretty profound for some people. And so if you're comfortable, um, what, what's been the biggest failure in your personal or professional life? And, you know, how did, how did you recover from that? And what lessons did you learn that have shaped who you are today? Well, it's interesting as you started talking about that, I was going to go in one direction and now I'm going to go in another direction. All right. The National Conference for Community and Justice, uh, which was established in 1927 as the National Conference of Christians and Jews, um, the organization was set up um, to really bring folks together to create dialogue across differences. And so it really looked, this was when, um, as I recall, Catholic was allegedly going to be uh, nominated as a vice president. And so this whole aspect of how do we talk to each other? How do we create ways and to have this intergroup dialogue? And so um, the chapter that was here in Orlando had existed for many years. And we had uh, just an amazing board, probably close to 100 board members, leaders in this community. And so a lot of our work was around training and development, was around community dialogue. Um, and, and so <clears throat> that piece of mentoring and training middle school and high school students around how to create more inclusive campuses was done. We would take those young people, you know, give them a week long experience, send them back to their campuses to try to make changes. And so the same kind of work we would do with inside organizations. And then 9-11 happened. And so when 9-11 happened, uh, I mean, we, we depended upon grants. We depended upon fundraising um, in order to do the work we did. And um, when, when funds left here and went to New York, um, our, our region collapsed. And at the time, I was the executive director. And so I was responsible for not only the program development and delivery, but I was also responsible for bringing in the dollars in fund development. And, and, and I failed at that. Um, and I think when the national organization decided that unless 
our board of directors were willing to sign a personal note guaranteeing to cover all of the expenses of the region that they were going to close us. And I did not even take that to my board because I felt, I felt that it was an unfair ask. And so that piece of failure, uh, I mean, I remember that it took me probably four weeks to clean out my office um, because the letters and things we had from the young people and everything was just probably some of my darkest days. And, and so my learning out of that was from a very powerful mentor who said to me, I know this work is important, but can you do this work anywhere else? I said, yeah, I can. I said, then what are you doing sitting here? Go get the work done. And, and that was so profound, as simple as that was, that was so profound. And it really was at that point that I decided, because I didn't go back and get my master's in social work, you know, until I was 57 and a half years old. I've been doing life coaching and executive coaching for 35 years to that point. But I knew how important the work was and was just empowered by that, that simple question. And, you know, were it not for that experience, for that learning opportunity, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Wow. And that's the first time I've told that story. Nice. Well, thank you. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank <laughs> you for sharing that. <laughs> um, on that note, let's see. So that's, that's one item. Now, I'm going to ask you to dig a little bit deeper. So what's the, what's the most important thing that you've learned in your life? What was your life like before learning it? And what has your life been like after learning it? Nice. Um. So I met because I think out loud, so I may have to clean this up after I say it. Um, I think what I thought was that I knew a whole lot of stuff. Um, I thought my life experience, my time in the military, um, living in this community for many, many years. I mean, I'm a, uh, my grandchildren are third generation Orange County public school students, graduated from Evans High School. Both of my degrees are from FTU and UCF. And so I, I was pretty proud of the fact that I thought I was pretty smart. <laughs> and all it takes is for you to be handed the reality of you ain't all that. And so when I decided to step into the arena of social justice work in all of my places of privilege, because I had a good heart, I wanted to do what was right, um, that I made far more mistakes 
in learning than, than I thought was ever possible. And what I learned was that I had a choice. I could remain in a place of shame because I didn't know what I didn't know, or I could do better to be better. And, and so that aspect of committing to, to myself of being a lifelong learner that I'll be 70 in January. And, you know, in addition to my licensure, you know, I'm a certified uh, clinical trauma professional. I'm a certified uh, clinical hypnotherapist. I am finishing a certification in anxiety for uh, children and adolescents. And so my commitment every year is to gain more knowledge because human behavior changes, life changes. And so I'm not nearly that pompous ass now that I was. And so it is asking for permission to step into the communities with which I'm not a member. It is also saying goodbye in a respectful way as I step out of them. You know, I have the, the amazing benefit of having two multiracial grandchildren who have probably taught me more than any mentor I could have. And part of that has been to be in their space and to ask them how they experience life, not telling them they can't think that way, feel that way, but to ask them what that feels like. And I think it's made me a better therapist. It certainly made me a better executive coach. It has made me a better leader. Um, because if I can't demonstrate to my team those weaknesses and those places in which I have learned, and, and I've, I've tried very hard to strike from how I view life between success and failure. As long as I have learned something from a process, then I haven't failed. I've either succeeded or I've learned. And I think, I think that's what I hold on to, David, is, you know, I don't want to stop learning. There's just too much to know. So there. I've never said that out loud either. Well, it's pretty awesome. Pretty profound. <laughs> so... Is there anything that I didn't ask that, that I should have asked? Is there, there anything, any topic that um, in the realm of PTSD, mental health, leadership, um, lessons learned, anything that just because of my, my ignorance to, to your life experience and knowledge, um, I don't know to ask. I think uh, what comes to mind when you ask that is I'm always going to plug um, that we find ways inside of our organizations to create space to talk about mental health, to make it okay that when we look at the loss of assets, of resources, of the damage to families, how organizational culture is impacted, 
because of mental health, that needs that needs some attention. Instead of, and I'll use I'll use one of my first responders um, who um, was witness to a couple horrific things. And so when he showed up, his supervisor said, you know, you need to change your attitude. I don't know what's wrong with you, but you need to put a smile on your face. Whatever the hell is going on, leave it at the door. And, and of course, not even a space of, hey, buddy, what's going on? Yeah. He had not only that going on, but he had a child with a terminal illness that he felt like he couldn't share. And so how do we, how do we get that place of compassion? And I'm not just going to say men, but it seems to be uncomfortable with men. You know, for me to put my hand on your shoulders and say, dude, you look a little down. What's going on? How can I help you? And so that piece in place of being vulnerable isn't a sign of weakness at all. And and I, and I think I think particularly with our first responders. And when we look again, let's look at at life expectancy. Let's look at mortality and morbidity. Let's look at what it's cost families. All of those things I think are important to look at, not at a, as not as a criticism of first responders, but as a check to say, we need to do better. How can we do better? If this, if this person retires or leaves and it's, it, he carries a sense of the, these assets with him and walks out the door, then we've lost it. We've lost that. And, and so I think that's important. When we talk about training and development, let's make sure that there are places around mental health and wellness and mental acuity, emotional intelligence. There's an okay place. And you can't take one course. You can't do four hours this Friday and four hours next Friday and come out with, I'm emotionally intelligent. It just doesn't work that way. And so I think particularly with these podcasts that you're doing in terms of, I think, leadership, this notion of leadership, I think we all need to step back from it to say, what does it mean to be a leader? Is it, is it, enough? Is it enough to carry compassion? Is it enough to be culturally sensitive, culturally aware, have cultural humil- humility? That because we see something on the TV that gets a broad brush stroke of, oh, these people are, without understanding how did we get here? I think it's short-sighted. And, and you know, the classes that, that I taught at UCF with our social workers, you know, was, were, were very much framed in terms of social justice. You know, because we have to understand, particularly as social workers, what does it mean for our client, the person in the environment? Don't just diagnose someone's mental health, but, you know, how did the fact that, you know, for you now as an adult lived in, in a home where there was domestic violence, you know, where someone spent time in jail, 
where someone was homeless. All of that is going to impact you as an adult. And so how we have those kinds of conversations without judgment, without blame, I think are, is absolutely important. And I think that when we do leadership training, that how do we understand the self-leadership part? Because if I can't lead myself, I'm sure not gonna have a, do a very good job of leading others. There, there was something that you said that, um, you know, I, I had a thought. I, I set it to the side because I wanted to pay attention to what you were saying. Um, but I, I think that if I go into this, we're going to end up talking a little bit, a little bit longer. Do you want to take a break and maybe? I'm good. Let's go. All right. Um, okay. Based on something you said earlier, it, it struck me that um, one of the things that isn't talked about a lot uh, in the fire service or in law enforcement is what, what a culturally or what an inclusive culture looks like when it comes to gender diversity. I, I recently read an article that uh, I want to say it was a fire chief or it was a chief officer from a department who discovered that one of his fire officers had retired without saying anything to anybody. After 25 years of service, this uh, female fire officer retired. And when he contacted her to say, you know, what's going on? What, you know, what led you to throw it in? And uh, she just said that it was time. And I recognized that the amount of stress that I carried with me, constantly having to prove myself, prove my value to the department or the team, having uh, people make excuses for me because of my gender, because I decided to do something one way rather than another, um, being dismissed because of my gender. She, she did say that her time in the fire service was the, the best time, the most rewarding time in her life, but she didn't recognize the stress that she was under um, having to endure just that subtle discrimination. Um, but I, I know from personal experience that a lot of times that gender discrimination is not so subtle. And I've had experiences in not the too distant past, where things were brought to my attention um, regarding forms of harassment and, and behavior that's just unacceptable. And come to find out, it's almost like uh, this culture in the fire service where 
And, and actually speaking to a lot of women that aren't in the fire service, it's, it's consistent through a lot of occupations and organizations is that women tend not to speak up because they don't want to be labeled as, as weak or that girl, um, you know, somebody that makes waves that, you know, you can't talk freely around, that sort of thing. Um, and, and I know through past conversations with you that it, it isn't uncommon. So what, what are your experiences with that? And, and what are maybe some things that, you know, could, um, you know, empower women and, and possibly enlighten men? Well, and I think, again, if we look at the last, particularly 25 years, um, how we see the workplace change is, is incredibly significant. And the notion of male leadership, what it means to be a male, particularly in male-dominated industries or careers, some of those changes rock not only the culture, but the hierarchy. And so we often talk about what happens inside a culture, particularly a work culture, when a stranger comes in. And so for many of us who have worked in social justice, trying to identify the stranger, of course, as anyone who isn't a part of the dominant culture. And so, you know, <clears throat> women learn very quickly where their place is in the hierarchy. And that working twice as hard, uh, living with that kind of, um, stress and anxiety. And I think in one of my previous comments talking about, we've got great research that talks about what does it mean to live in that place of, of what we call minority, what is a minority stress model. And so the stress that is required that develops just trying to meet and be a part of some hierarchy it really has nothing to do with getting the job done. It has to do with the culture that's created inside of the organization. And so, you know, as, as women have continued to become part and, and a larger part of the workforce, then how do things such as uniforms or protective equipment that firefighters wear that have been up until recently designed for men. And so now you have women in there and what changes have been made because certainly I know of a local fire um, organization where there were several women who were injured because the equipment didn't fit them right. And so, who inside the organization will step back and say, okay, wait a minute, there's, there's a problem here. 
I know folks get tired of hearing the term privilege, but in these, particularly in law enforcement and uh, fire service, there is a level of male privilege that exists that as men, you don't have to figure out what the unwritten rules are because it's not the written ones we have to worry about, but again, it's the culture, the culture, the organizational culture. And so men often get very upset that they can't tell the jokes they want to tell. Is the joke, are the jokes even really relevant for the workplace? No, it's not. But it feels like an imposition. And so when I talked about, you know, my work in, in treating trauma, that is certainly minority identity development and what that means to be a part of a discriminated group is a part of that. And how do you help? How does that female firefighter make sense of those 25 years? I mean, I don't know what that has cost her in terms of, you know, uh, morbidity, you know, what, it, what if she were to do a quality of life assessment, where would she be? You know, how has she coped in that process? And so, you know, it's again, if we're talking about leadership and you and I have certainly, you know, batted this round um, ad nauseum is how do we ensure that the leadership that we're talking about is leadership that works for everyone? Because there's no one way to lead. And so, you know, you and I are very different people. And, I mean, we, sh we share some things, but how do we create a leadership program and a culture that will work for both of us and then for the folks who are often treated as strangers inside of the workplace? And so for men, again, my piece is I say to when I'm doing leadership training or doing team development, my comment is it is not enough for an organization to say we need more diverse teams. But if we don't set those diverse teams up for success so that everyone understands what the culture of the organization is, then it makes no sense whatsoever. And in one of the programs that I worked on at Disney, was to help understand that when we measured women executives coming in, people of color executives coming in, they dropped out many, many, many more times than, than white male executives. And so how do you create a safety net after you've gone and you're recruited and you've, you're trying to train them? It wasn't they didn't know how to do their job. They couldn't do their job in the culture that was created. And so that's very tough because if you've been successful and the brand has been successful, how do you ask someone to change that? You know, and my job was very much to say, you know, things don't remain static. Things change. You, you create marketing plans, business plans based upon the optics and what you've got going on right now. And so, you know, if you're doing a SWOT analysis, then let's do a SWOT analysis that includes the culture of the organization. What are the strengths of the organization as it relates to culture? How are we holding our leaders accountable 
that if I'll use one that I encountered, that 80% of the women who come into your, be a part of your organization have left with inside of 12 or 18 months. Who in the organization then is holding that leader accountable? Because have you hired that many women who couldn't do the job? Or, or have you made it impossible for them to crack the code of what the culture is? And so, uh, I worked with a team, and this leader uh, would not give female managers out-of-town assignments because his belief was that those women needed to be home for their children and for their husbands and not to be gone overnight. Well, how people got promoted was, of course, through visibility. Right. And accomplishing these things. So you withheld that developmental opportunity. And, and where I live, David, is very much the fact of, I don't think people do this intentionally, but it's, it's that self-leadership. What, what do you think? What is the bias that you're holding? Well, in his case was, well, no, my wife has been home. She's been a stay-at-home mom. She's reared the children. There's dinner on the table. Therefore, that's my model. That's the culture that I expect. Was he aware he was doing that? He said, no. I mean, I, I think you've got to be a little unwoke <laughs> not recognize, to not recognize that, you know, almost 90% of the people being promoted out of your area are males. And you've lost nearly that many females. And so, but again, we have to be willing to have that conversation. And so to sit with this leader, to be able to say, help me understand. Okay, well, if that's what you're thinking, what do you think that that does to the women here? I guess it probably robs them of an opportunity, yes. And so perhaps before you make that decision for them, you can ask them, I've got this assignment. How, how do you feel about overnights? Again, it's the empowering piece. Let, let your team make their decisions. Don't make them for them. And so we still have a lot of the shaking out of that culture that needs to happen. I mean, again, let's look at our, you know, our Fortune 500. Let's see how many leaders we have. Let's see how many people of color we have as leaders. And so, you know, it, it isn't, my statement is always, isn't, hasn't been that um, it's not a matter that there's not room at the table. We just, the table that we've been using for a century isn't the right table. We need a different table. And we need a culture that welcomes that, that welcomes a difference in thought. Where it's safe to be able to say, you know what, I'm not sure that's the only way for us to approach that and to give space to hear someone with that. And, you know, women have had to fight for that voice at the table. And you're right, they don't complain because what happens when they start complaining is that they're regarded very different than their male counterparts. Wow, he's well-driven. She becomes a bitch. And 
that's that's the culture that's the culture that has to be that has to be changed but again we have to see our senior leaders model that so what does their senior leadership team look like who's who is in the the developmental piece of, of next in line who do we have in our progressive you know um development process for our leaders and and i think the upper management the uh, administration or um, executive leadership there needs to be a great deal of courage without a doubt because especially if there is an issue and they've been in that position for however long it's almost admitting a failure yes and I, I think that most people would be reluctant to do that. And, and it takes a strong leader, somebody with a great deal of character and, and courage to, to actually say, you know what, I've, I've made a mistake, we're gonna fix it. Yeah, yeah. And, and to me, if we talk about hallmarks of leadership, courageous, courage is very, very important. I mean, you know, you part of this program was about how do we learn from our failures? How do we learn, you know, where is there a place for us to be coached, to be given feedback and to respond to it? And again, the leaders that I've worked with, you know, who've been successful are those who are willing to be that vulnerable, to be able to say, you know what, this was a strategy. And that strategy did not include everyone. From this day forward, we're going to look at that differently. And I'm going to start with my senior leadership team. And, and it is holding your direct reports accountable for that. Uh, we, we often say in trying to make those kinds of changes inside organizations, you know, how do you incense leaders to meet those goals? Well, you know, what gets done is what gets counted. You know, is there money on the other end of that? And so when you start impacting someone's bonus, we do that in terms of setting goals for income. And so, you know, what I saw happen in several of the organizations I've worked with is you have a whole different story once you can get through, of course, the, oh, we now have to count numbers. Because if you don't have if you don't have a leadership program that recognizes the value of that, it isn't going to work. But I think it can be part of a scorecard. Certainly around the fact of if I am a leader, what am I doing in terms of retention? Because if I got a sorry retention rate, whoever I'm losing, that says something about my leadership. And if we don't, if I, if that's me and my leader isn't holding me accountable for that, then I'm going to continue about business as usual. So those things that we heard of, you can't find a competent woman. You can't find, you can't find a person of color to be able to do that. You know, it's simply not true. It is simply not true. You're not looking or you're not looking in the right places. Or you're not 
setting them up for success or or creating a culture where they see success in their future. Yeah. And so if what you offer to your white executives or to your male executives coming in is a mentor and don't do that for your female executives, what does that say about your organization? How have you set them up for success? And then talk to senior leadership and they go, wow, we never thought of that. Okay. Well then your mentorship program is whacked. You know, why, why is it this group gets it and another group doesn't? And then you say, see, we can't retain women. And so again, that takes courage for someone to, to be able to call that out and say, and for me, I'm not a part of call out culture, but I am a part of help me understand. This doesn't make sense to me. So help me understand the decision-making process, because I do think we have to give people a way out. Be able to say, yeah, I didn't even think about it. Okay. You know, let's do better. How do we do better? So in, let's do a hypothetical situation. We have somebody that is in a position to bring this issue to the forefront, to senior management, executive leadership, that sort of thing. What do you think the, the most constructive way to, to make it happen would be? Uh, we've, we've talked about incentivizing it, uh, you know, placing a dollar amount on it. But if we're talking about creating a more inclusive culture, one where women or underrepresented uh, individuals see themselves as being able to attain success within that organization, enough to where they're going to stick around and, you know, work hard toward achievement or are they going to spin their wheels, get frustrated and go, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere where I'm valued. So how do you monetize that? How do you, because yet there's a lot of talk about the value of diversity, but I've got a question uh, executive leadership's, you know, uh, genuineness of, of that, you know, do they embrace that or is it just, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll get this group together, a think tank and we'll add a, a woman and somebody of color and yeah, that'll, that'll round out the group. So, because what happens is, yeah, those people might be at the table, but are they going to speak up? Right. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, I think there is a, there is a difference between representation and participation. And so that when we look at our organizations, and again, this is where courageous leadership takes place. So, I did some work at an organization that was very, very proud of their hiring of women and people of color. And so they were touting 22% um, of their new hires were women and people of color. And, and so my question to them was, 
where in the organization, in the org chart, were those people hired? And 90% of them were hired at the two lowest levels. And there were three, some would say four more levels above that. And so, again, who is there to be able to say, because you can make statistics say a whole bunch of things. Wherein our organization are the women? Wherein the organization are the people of color? What are we doing to develop? And what's tough, and I'm going to be particularly critical of um, not all, but many law enforcement, fire service folks, because there is a fairly rigid, good old boy culture. And it isn't just to keep women out or to shut typically underrepresented minorities, but it's to keep things in place. It is to keep things status quo. And so when you are presenting a new idea, the immediate answer is no before there's even consideration. And so for a lot of us who do consulting work, particularly in, in assessing culture, it is how do you create a, how do you create a leadership position that, that constantly looks at and assesses the culture of the organization? You know, um, it is not a gotcha, but it is to be able to say, there is so much that has happened in our world over the last 10 years that what leadership and inclusion, diversity and equity looks like has changed dramatically. And it's going to continue to change. And so how do we help those folks who are so locked in to just let go of the reins a little bit? Because we're going to create better organizations. But people are going to have to let go of some of the things they're holding on to. And in doing work with another organization with a CEO, his question to me was, Michael, what do I have to look out for that I haven't been taught to look out for? And I said, the most important thing is culture inside your organization. Who are you retaining? Who are you not retaining? What are people's experiences? Go down to the employee cafeteria. Sit with the people who are on the front line. Ask them what their experience is. I said, because if you send out a survey, you're either not going to fill it out or they're not going to be truthful. So essentially, your direction is to have these organizational leaders work very hard at shrinking their amount of ignorance. That's correct. And it's funny that we touched on this because one of my recent interviews, I interviewed a, uh, a major from the Air Force who also works in the fire service and African-American man. Um, and he has an extensive background in uh, equal opportunity 
um, investigations, that sort of thing, and within the Air Force. A great deal of training, that sort of thing, and he is very comfortable enlightening people that look like you and me. And it just struck me that you and I are having this conversation and here we are two white guys. And it really, to to change the culture of an organization where, especially in the fire service, law enforcement, that is predominantly white male, it's gonna take white men to step up, be courageous and work very hard at diminishing their personal ignorance so that they can help diminish it in their peers. Absolutely. And to me, that is that that piece back to something I said earlier. It's where I think for those of us who are designing leadership training, who are delivering leadership training, that we have to step back and say, what do our customers or clients look like? What do our employees or staff look like? And what do our stakeholders look like? Because every one of those folks in that group need to feel like they are a part of what's going on, particularly if there's a mission of the organization. And and it is, again, not a call-out culture that you're wrong, but it's a developmental and a coaching culture that says, here's what will make you better. Here's what will make you more effective as your workforce changes. Because it's going to change. Yeah. This part up here, up at the top, that's very slow to change. But this part down here, and the ones I feel most in touch with is the folks who are in the middle, who are caught between trying to move that up here and respond to what's happening with those that report to them. And so... You know, this notion of, of change, I mean, you know, much of my work, consulting work is just in terms of how do you help an organization manage change? Because no one likes change. Yeah. But change is necessary if you're going to pivot, if you're going to be responsive, if you're going to meet your goals. You have to change. And so identifying what makes this hard for you. Tell me what you need. We are here to support you. So what do you need to help you make these changes? Because you've got to have, you've got to have a leader and leadership, leaders in the leadership team who are willing to have those hard conversations among themselves. And your, your, your leader has to be willing to hold their direct reports accountable for what's going down across you know the organization it is far it's far better far easier not better far easier to dig your heels in and say oh that won't work as opposed to i don't understand it but let's see how we can make it work and so you know that notion of helping the leaders inside the organizations that i worked with and for to be able to say, if I can show you what's in it for you, and it is mission-focused work, and it creates more dollars and value to the organization, 
it brings more value because of folks we depend on for fundraising. Would you be interested? Yeah, of course. Okay. Now we can have a conversation. How much of you do you have to give up in order to make that happen? Now we're talking, that's tough. But it's got, listen, I still believe that unless leaders develop in terms of, of emotional intelligence, uh, uh, understanding cultural differences, understanding what it means to be uh, an underrepresented, underrepresented minority stepping into a majority organization, then we're going to fail. I mean, my work at UCF, which now has become a Hispanic-serving institution, that's taken years and years and years to get faculty and staff to a place that they're going to be okay if somebody speaks Spanish. Doesn't mean you give up your speaking English, but what are you doing to serve what now is going to be, you know, nearly 35 or close to 40% of your students? Are you going to not welcome them? Well, we need to adopt English as the official language. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't need to do that. <laughs> you don't need to do that. <clears throat> that becomes part. Is that what you're afraid of? Yeah. So, yes. Well, I, I think this has been, well, it's been in, very eye-opening for me. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much for letting me interview you, and, and thank you, thank you for uh, sharing so much. My pleasure, David. Thank you for the opportunity um, to share. I I really appreciate and respect the fact of, you know, as we've talked over the last few months, you know, your approach to leadership, and so trying to create what leaders look like to be effective i think is is important and you know i have to leave those things now to you and those who follow you those that you mentor in the process it's absolutely essential well, thank you thank you for everything that you've taught me and, and continue to teach me thank you for listening to this episode of from embers to excellence with dave hollenbach please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.